It's good to see you. It is a beautiful day today. I'm pretty sure there's some people that have lost their minds and are running around town. Um, so it's really good to see you all this morning. As Paul mentioned, my name is Jeremy Kuhn. My class is finished in January, so I'm still, I'm past, past the, uh, the need for clapping. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I do, we're going to Louisville in a week and a half. Uh, for my graduation ceremony, so we're looking forward to that, and that, that should be a sweet time. I met, I think I've met one prof face-to-face in all of my years of seminary, because I've been doing it online. But enough about me, uh, this is the time for God's Word to be proclaimed to you, so if you would please stand with me, follow along with me in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to be reading... Quite a large chunk from what we're used to, but that's okay. And I need my glasses. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin... Tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you simply Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. 
You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that you are a holy God and you set a holy standard. I pray, Father, that as we walk through this this morning, that you would give us understanding about what you are calling us to and where, indeed, we find our righteousness, which is in your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you may have heard of what's known as Ivy League schools. I don't know what schools fit into the Ivy League schools, but I read recently that there's a school in New York City called Columbia University, and it is the hardest school last year to get into. Their acceptance rate was 3.9%. They admit just under 2,400 students each year, and there was somewhere of tens of thousands of applicants that year. To be considered for Columbia University, you have to have an achieved almost perfect SAT score, have exceptional grades in advanced courses, be engaged in rigorous extracurricular activities, not to mention having glowing letters of recommendation from people in your community, This morning, we're going to discuss the qualifications about entering the kingdom of heaven. If you listen to the scripture reading just now, you heard that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And at the end, we read that you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is a high call. God's word in Matthew not only gives us a picture of this seemingly unreachable demand But it also gives us the remedy for the reality that our relaxed attitude toward God's law disqualifies us. The answer to that, of course, is Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills all righteousness. And since Jesus fulfills all righteousness, we need to find our righteousness in him, as we sang this morning. So this morning, we're going to focus our attention on Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Um, I will... Hit the rest of it, kind of like if you skip a rock across the pond, and that's what we're going to do with the rest of the chapter. So our focus is going to be just on that introductory part. The path we're going to take is going to look like this. We know that we can find our righteousness in Christ because of three things. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. Jesus honored the law from the heart, as we are called to do. Jesus also shares the perfection of the Father. So first, we can find our righteousness in Christ 
because he fulfills the law. We find our righteousness in Jesus who fulfills the law, or the Old Testament. What did Jesus come to do in in verse 17? Jesus says at the beginning, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. What does he mean by this? Why might they be asking this question, or why is he addressing this question in the first place? Because abolish, what it means is to end the effectiveness of it or the validity of it. Now, Matthew may not be written in chronological order, but we do see earlier in Matthew there are instances where he has been preaching, he has been teaching. Matthew 4.17, for example, it says that from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was actively preaching in in 4.23, where we read, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel. What may have been happening is that Jesus' teaching, which was outside the norm for the other teachers of the law at that time, may have been seen as an attempt to usurp the law. We know that Jesus challenged the hypocritical teaching of the Pharisees, and his teaching was so distinct, the crowds recognized it. At the end of Matthew 7.28, it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished because he was teaching as one who had authority, not like the scribes. Jesus also challenged the Pharisees' interpretation and application of the law. So this might be why he's given this. I didn't come to abolish him. He's most notably charged with breaking the Sabbath. He did miracles on the Sabbath, for example, in Matthew 12, chapter 12 records that. He associates with sinners. That was something that the law seemed to bring people back from. The Pharisees and the scribes did all they could to avoid them because they didn't want to be unclean. He reclined at table and house, and as he did that, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples in Matthew 9. Jesus violates their traditions. In Matthew 15, we read, The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Yet we know that Jesus urged people to keep the law. When he healed the leper in Matthew 8, he tells him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a proof to them. He was urging them to keep the law. So Jesus didn't come to abolish. By no means, he didn't come to set it aside. He didn't come to minimize it. But he did come to fulfill it. The contrast that we need to see is not that Jesus... Uh, the, con- the contrast that we need to see is not between be- abolish and keep, but abolish and fulfill. What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? It doesn't necessarily mean or only mean that Jesus kept it perfectly. That is true. Jesus did keep it perfectly, but that's not the whole sense that Matthew gives us about fulfill. The relationship is between the Old Testament teaching and Jesus' teaching, not his actions. And Matthew gives us a hint about what he means by fulfill by the way that he's already used it in, in his gospel so far. So just a couple of examples. In Matthew one twenty two, we see the, the birth narrative of Jesus. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he's referring in that, in that instance to Mary's virgin birth of Christ. That instance is referring to a writing from Isaiah that says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. 
If we go back to Isaiah and look at that briefly and read that all in context, what we'll see is that Isaiah is given a message about a young woman, that's the literal word, who's going to have a birth, and it will be in the context of the invasion of Assyria. And that happens in the next chapter where there's a fulfillment of that promise. And what Matthew's doing is he's seeing this pattern and he's incorporating it, and he's seeing the pattern, and it's repeated in, in Jesus' birth, and he's bringing that to our attention to say this is the way that God is fulfilling the, the patterns and events and promises. A second example is Matthew uh, 2.15, around that area where Jesus and his family have gone down to Egypt. Matthew quotes Hosea 11.1, 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now this line in Hosea looks back. It's not a prediction, but it's an event that was copied or repeated throughout history of this Exodus language. And the last one, Matthew 2.17, then was fulfilled by the prophet Jeremiah. So he's referring to what the prophet Jeremiah said, Rachel's weeping for her children, and that was in reference to the children in Bethlehem being killed by Herod. And if we look at Jeremiah, that's just children that are killed. Their people are weeping. It's not a predictive event, but it's an event that's a type that's looking forward to its fulfillment. So when we think about fulfillment from Matthew and the way that Jesus uses Matthew's language here, or Matthew uses Jesus' language here of fulfillment, what we're seeing is that there are events and persons and promises that find their completion in Jesus Christ. What this comes to as far as a head for us is that the Old Testament's real and enduring authority is understood through the person to whom it points, the person who richly fulfills it. When God rescued Israel, he gave them a law so that they would flourish as his people. And it was through their obedience that they would experience blessing. But it was after their redemption. They had become God's people. The primary means of flourishing under the Old Covenant was through the law. And with the coming of Jesus, our flourishing is now through him, whom the law pointed the whole time. Paul hints at this distinction in Galatians when he says in Galatians three twenty-three to 25, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So what he's saying there essentially is that there's a transition that's happened. We were, God's people were under the law. Now our identity is wrapped up in Christ rather than the law itself. And the center of attention for all of it, all of it was pointing to who Jesus was and what he would do. And that has come. And now with the New Testament and the revelation we have of the New Testament, all of those promises, all of those events and patterns focus in like a laser on Jesus Christ himself. The Old Testament also acted as a sign of what would come in the person of Christ. And now that he has come, he gets that attention. What were these signs? Just briefly, and we've, we've looked at these before, but Adam, he was the head of humanity who pointed to a son of God who would represent God in the world. Noah, he was a herald of righteousness. He pointed to a son of God who would save his people through judgment. Abraham, he was a man chosen by God, and this points to a son of God who would walk before God and be blameless. Israel itself, 
It's a nation of priests pointed to a son of God who would intercede for the world. The prophets all pointed to a son of God who would warn God's people about judgment and urge them to repentance. And the kings, especially David, the promise of a son after him whose throne would last forever points to a son of God who would reign for eternity. These are just examples, but what we see is when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish but to fulfill, this is what he's talking about. Everything in the scripture, he says, is pointing to me, and I have come to live out what God has proclaimed all throughout history. We also see in this section of Matthew, in verses 18 to 19, how Jesus seeks to honor the law by calling his disciples to honor the law. He does it in three ways. The first one is that he affirms the enduring character of the law. He says, not an iota until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota and not a dot will pass from the law. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Now the saying, until heaven and earth pass away, it may mean until there's a new heaven and a new earth, or it could mean forever. Um, The idea of heaven and earth passing away is frankly inconceivable. But either way, what we know is that there is not going to be any kind of change in the authority of God's word as long as we're alive. As long as the, the current earth, earth and heavens exist, God's word endures. And then he says, none of it will pass away until all is accomplished. This is more fulfillment language. The work of Christ is not complete. He has come. He has inaugurated the new covenant. Your justification by faith is, has set you on a trajectory that God has set forth to receive the promises, and ultimately to receive the kingdom. But the final redemption, the final restoration, the new heavens and new earth, those are still future. The second way that Jesus honors the law and calls his disciples to honor it is that he upholds the authority of the Old Testament scriptures down to the last stroke of a pen. Jesus shows a high view of the Old Testament that cannot be matched. The ESV writes that not an iota, not a dot, The New American Standard or the NIV say the smallest letter or least stroke of pen. Anybody that memorized this in the King James remembers not a jot or a tittle. What an iota is is the smallest Greek letter. It's a a portion. There's a way that that letter can be used in which it's unpronounced, barely discernible. And the tittle or the jot or the dot is one of those things that could just be like a hook. That's literally a hook. And what we might see is like accent marks on ancient language words. Or if you think about the, what, that little hook that distinguishes a Q from an O and how that little difference can make a big difference in what we read. But what Jesus is pointing to here is that every minutiae, small thing about God's word is going to be kept forever. It's an enduring word. The last way that Jesus... Uh, affirms and honors the law is that he says that his disciples must not relax the least of the commandments. And this is not just a reference to the Ten Commandments. It's another way of speaking of the law and the prophets or what's known as the Old Testament. What does it mean to relax? To relax God's law. It means to set it aside. It means to ignore it. 
or to treat it as it's just not important. I, I don't need to know that, or I don't really need to obey that. That's for a different time. The requirement for entering the kingdom, for entering life, is keeping the commandments. It's black and white. Some have taken verse 19, the language of least and great in the kingdom, as levels of blessing and reward, but that really doesn't fit the context here, especially with verse 20. It's a necessary condition. Now, wait a minute, you might be thinking. Does this mean that our salvation is by works? No. Salvation is rescue. We've broken these laws. We've relaxed these commandments. Our salvation is not wrapped up in our obedience. Our salvation is wrapped up in the obedience of Christ. Our disobedience is a reflection of who we are on the inside. It's a reflection that we're a sinner. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 1917 about a person who asked him, you know, what good, good person or good teacher what good deed must I do to enter eternal life? He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. This is a common theme. There's a call for God's people to keep the commandments. Paul says in 1 Corinthians seven nineteen, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. 1 John 2, 4 says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In summary, the Old Covenant, which showed the way in which God's people would flourish with God, has found its fulfillment in Christ, who has come. The Old Testament is still Scripture. It shows us who God is. It reveals Christ to us. It still works to guard our flesh against sin. And it is the means of our salvation and union with Christ. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 3.15, writing to Timothy, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It trains us to be complete. He continues, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The biggest objection our hearts want to face in this text is that it sounds an awful lot like Jesus is saying our righteousness is what saves us. But we have to remember what we need to keep in mind is that the language of righteousness that's being used in the sermon isn't always the righteousness that we think or the way that we think of righteousness in the rest of the Bible. Remember, I, I, I mentioned this last week, I don't know if you remember, but the Sermon on the Mount is formatted a lot like wisdom literature. It makes very black and white statements, but it also points out the reality of the law, of who God is. It's a way of life. It's a way of living in a world in anticipation for the world to come. Matthew and Jesus, for that matter, are not alone in making these kinds of statements that we need to keep the commandments. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. That's John, 1 John 3.24. Also in 5.3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His, his commandments are not burdensome. Revelation 14.12, Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments, the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. James 
who seems to draw several themes from the Sermon on the Mount, also affirms the importance of keeping God's word. He writes in James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. But this is not a doing that saves. James also says in James 1.25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed in his doing because he's looking at the law, he's reflecting, he's seeing. As Paul mentioned earlier, we see God's holiness in the law and we see our sin. It's a reflection on God's word. It's a response to God's word. This ties into what we saw in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So are you aware that you have relaxed the least of God's commandments? And does it grieve you? This is being poor in spirit. Do you long for a life that is pleasing to God? This is hungering, thirsting for righteousness. This is the type of attitude that we have that reflects our union with Christ. As an example, my uncle worked for OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. If you're a manager of a business, you don't like OSHA. But part of his job was to inspect thrill rides at amusement parks and carnivals. And he once told me that after he started doing this job, that he would never, ever ride a roller coaster again. And the reason for that is that if a maintenance worker or technician relaxed in his duties in the least, that mortal danger awaited for everyone who rode the rides. Now, I don't mean to scare you away from roller coasters, but the reality is, is if somebody doesn't do their job, disaster's waiting. Now, just as a roller coaster technician must not relax in the least of his duties because of the safety of everyone who rides it, we must not relax in anything for which God commands us. The implications for us can hardly be more clear. There's a seriousness to God's word that we're expected to uphold. It's serious enough that our claim as God's people is measured by our response to God's word. The truth of, of whether we know God is measured by how we respond to his word. The Apostle John writes again in 1 John 4, 6, We are from God. Whoever knows us listens to us. He's talking about the apostolic authority. And when he says, whoever knows God listens to them, he's saying that it will be characteristic for the believer to listen to and respond obediently to God's word. And the inverse is also true. A person who doesn't know God is not going to have a response to God's word that's, that's positive. A person who doesn't have a saving relationship with Christ. So we need to examine ourselves. Are we hearers and not doers? Do you deceive yourself thinking that there are areas of God's word that you don't need to listen to? Things that confront your life in certain ways, any corrections that you might have to submit to. And in our fallen natures, this is going to be true of all of us. At different points and in different ways, we all need to face the reality that this is true. So the question is not whether you sin. We always sin, and we all sin. We have not completely escaped its power, as we read in Romans 7 earlier. The question is whether or not you're aware of this, and if you're willing to repent, and if you draw near to Christ. The question is whether or not you will respond to God's word with repentance, and sin, and that repentance is a, 
is not just a sorrow for sin, but it's a rejoicing in the salvation that Christ gives to you. So how do we live up to this? Well, frankly, it's impossible in and of ourselves. It's only through our union with Christ. Paul writes in Romans 8 that God has done what the law could not do. God condemned sin in the flesh, our sin. He condemned in the flesh of his son. Why? Romans 8, 4 says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So we see these high demands in Matthew's gospel of a greater righteousness, and we read here that that righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. And this is the us that he defines according who walk according to the flesh, excuse me, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Where we fail, we look to Christ. And if you're in him, if you're experiencing union with Christ through saving faith, his righteousness is your righteousness. The spirit has been poured out so that you can live a life pleasing to God, a life that honors his word and a life that honors our Lord Jesus. So we've just seen that our righteousness in Christ is because he fulfills the law. We find our righteousness in Christ because he fulfills the law. Second, we'll see how our righteousness, we find our righteousness in Christ who honors the law from the heart. Because Jesus honored the law from the heart. We know we can find our righteousness in Christ because Jesus honored the law from the heart. Jesus speaks about the kind of righteousness that qualifies one for the kingdom in Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do Do you guys know how righteous from the outside the scribes and Pharisees were perceived to be? They upheld the law so carefully They put up rules like a fence around the law to keep them from coming close to breaking the law. And then they built hedges that goes around those fences so that they could not even get close to breaking their rules. Their traditions and their rules had so many protections that it seemed impossible for a Pharisee or a scribe or whoever was following these to break God's law. No one in their day would have thought of them as legalists or as sinners or somebody who would experience woe as opposed to blessing. Legalism was probably not even a a vocabulary term that they had, but the scribes and Pharisees were essentially seen as protectors of the law. They were seen as the shepherds of God's people. And this is kind of confusing to us if we see Jesus' charge to the scribes and the Pharisees as being hypocrites. He shocked the crowds when he said, At John's baptism, he calls them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John's words, shocking. Matthew 23 can be helpful for us. Jesus tells the crowds and his disciples to observe whatever the Pharisees say, for they sit on Moses' seat. They had an authority, and it was a good authority. They sat on Moses' seat. Whatever they taught from the law was to be obeyed. They lived impeccable lives. 
Their traditions and additions to the law, if practiced by the people, would have undoubtedly created a very peaceful and moral society. And the charge of hypocrisy comes as they turn people not towards extra works, but instead of doing that to protect them, they addressed their extra works rather than address the heart. And this is most clear in Matthew 23, verses 25 to 28. He says that they're clean on the outside, but not on the inside. They were indeed had a practice of righteousness, but inside they were like dead men's tombs. Because of the nature of their hypocrisy, Jesus' criticism is not that they are good, but that they're not good enough. The contrast that Jesus sets up in the coming verses show that the required obedience was more than external. So another way of looking at it, the Pharisees were not guilty of disobedience to the law, but of seeking to prove their own righteousness by the law. Paul makes this statement in Romans 10.3. He says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Entrance into the kingdom requires a greater righteousness than what we see with the scribes and Pharisees. What does this mean? How do we have a greater righteousness than the most righteous people we could see? It helps if we think through how Jesus and Matthew are using that term righteousness. We often think because of how Paul speaks of righteousness in terms of justification. Our righteousness in Christ makes us not guilty. Said and done. Gavels dropped, not guilty, free to go which is a right way of understanding righteousness. It's a state we enjoy before God because of our faith in Christ. Matthew gives us a different aspect of that. For example, in the birth story of Jesus, Joseph finds out Mary is pregnant. Matthew 1.19 says, Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Joseph, in that passage, is called just, which is another way of translating that same word that we get righteous from. And Joseph's righteousness is not speaking of his not guilty status before God, but because of his merciful character towards Mary. He wants to divorce her quietly. He, for lack of a better term, was a good man. Righteousness for Matthew is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature and his will and his coming kingdom. So when we see here in Matthew 5.20, that a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and Pharisees is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's not referring to being more or not. uh, You're not more not guilty. We're all not guilty because of Christ's righteousness. What he's referring to is who are you on the inside as well as the outside? The text doesn't say anything here about how to attain it. It just simply lays out the demand. And if the demand is not met, entrance into the kingdom of God is not granted. And like I just said, the greater righteousness has to do with who you are more than what you do. The one will not be present without the other. So Jesus clears up the mystery of this statement with the examples that he gives that we'll just run through real quick. He gives six examples of applying the law in verses 21 through 47. Jesus shows what righteousness from the heart looks like here. Each of these begins with, you have heard that it was said, or something very similar. This is Jesus' way of pointing to, to the law or how it was interpreted or applied. And Jesus begins with the command about not murdering. Most of us can say, well, I haven't murdered anybody. 
This is number five of the Ten Commandments. But he moves on and says, if you're angry with your brother, or if you've called him a fool, you're guilty of murder if you've got that kind of anger in your heart. Jesus is saying that we have a heart response that he needs to point out. Next one, he addresses adultery. Command number six, Jesus narrows in on lust, which happens in the heart. Jesus addresses divorce. Now, that citation is from Deuteronomy 24.1. And the Jews in that time, if, if you cooked a bad meal, you're at risk of getting a divorce. But he points out that it leads to adultery. And in Matthew 19.7, we see a, that Jesus says that this, this clause was given because people's hearts were hard. Oaths. Leviticus 19.12. Jesus issues... Uh, this warning, because people were making promises and including loopholes with their oaths. The heart issue he's attracting here is just a matter of dishonesty, which ties to the ninth commandment. Next, he addresses retaliation. In case you care, what he says here with the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, this is known as the lex talionis or the just retribution clause. It's not from the Ten Commandments, but it's found in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. The problem that Jesus is addressing here is not whether or not we seek justice, but of whether or not we're seeking vengeance. Because this was a governmental type of command. It wasn't a personal vengeance type of, of idea. And last of all, Jesus brings up the command to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Loving your neighbor, that comes from, comes from Leviticus 19.18, but the second half, you shall hate your enemy, that's not anywhere word for word, in the Old Testament. That was probably derived out of some passages that talk about hating God's enemies, such as Psalm 97, a couple other places, um, Psalm 119, 139, Deuteronomy, Amos, those, those all have things about how God's enemies are hated. And what was happening was with the, the teachers of the law were saying, well, if I want to be like God, I need to hate my enemies. Jesus is saying that this is not characteristic of those who are sons of your Father in heaven. All of these examples point out that the law, which we can carry out by the letter if we're careful enough, is not good enough because it needs to be a matter of the heart. The obedience from the heart is something that Paul writes about as well. Ephesians 6, 5 and 6, Paul addresses bond servants that they should obey their earthly masters, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He rejoices over what he hears of the believers in Rome. In Romans 6.17, he writes, But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Christ himself honored the law of God from the heart. We see how this has a pre-fulfillment in a Messianic psalm, Psalm 40. A Messianic psalm is a a psalm that was understood as referring to the Messiah. Psalm 40, verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And this is reflected in how Jesus speaks about his obedience to the Father in John 4, 34. Jesus says to the people, My food is to, to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, this was in the context of him breaking social norms to help that Samaritan woman 
and to love her and to explain God's salvation to her. Additionally, we see Jesus in John 5.30 and 6.38 say that he came to do the will of him who sent him. Jesus came to do God the Father's will. We can perceive just the way that he says that, that his motivation for keeping the law was not for his own acclaim. It wasn't for his own glory. It was for his Father's glory. And we see that he was doing that because of his love for his Father. So in this way, he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law, the goal of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's a righteousness that we have that depends on faith. It's an internal righteousness that works itself out. And Paul urges us, Jesus urges us, to work out that righteousness. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, the mercies that he explains all the way from chapter 1 of Romans through chapter 11, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what John the Baptist called for in Matthew 3, 8. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The two are going to be going hand in hand. We are to bear fruit. Now, speaking of fruit, not all fruit is what some people say it's cracked up to be. There's one particular fruit, in my opinion, that's a complete waste of space. And many of you have been seduced by its phony allurement, and it's called an avocado. (laughs) The reason I say this, besides the fact that it's boring in its flavor, is that it can look ripe for a really long time. You cut one open, and it's either rock hard or mushy and moldy. And you have to have, like, the same chance of getting into Columbia University to actually open one up. That's the right ripe, uh, ripeness. It's a mockery. Its only redeeming value is when it's made into guacamole, and that's only because you add a bunch of stuff to it. <laughs> Thankfully, not all fruits are so horrible. And thankfully, the fruit that we're called to bear in repentance is not beyond our ability. It doesn't take, we don't have a 3.8% success rate for having fruit if we're walking in the Spirit. John writes in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And this is, this is really important. His commandments are not burdensome. The burden of keeping the law is removed through our relationship with Christ because he's given us a renewed heart. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. So what do we do with this new creation that we've been given? We draw nearer to Christ. In our fight against sin, we are not just fighting the things that we ought not to do. We're also finding our, fighting our tendency to establish our own righteousness. And this is not a matter of us trying harder I think this is, what, this is what Paul rebuked the Galatians believers for in Galatians 3.3. 3. He says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? His point, and the point we need to apply, is that every step of the way in, we, in our walk with Christ, we need to depend on the Spirit. We need to depend on the Spirit in our union with Christ. We don't just try harder. We don't just give it our best effort. Jesus writes in John 15, 5, I am the vine, 
You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And we need to remember that. We can do nothing apart from Christ. This is, I think, where many of us get so confused. We're always trying to do something when what we need to remember is that we are something. When we need to seek to apply this, we need to, to consider who we are because of whose we are. You understand that? We think of ourselves as Christians and we think that we have to do certain things and we lose sight sometimes that everything that we do is tied to our union with Christ himself. So how do we do this? How do we grow in our understanding of our union so that that fruit naturally grows? It's tilling the soil, so to speak. The best thing we can do is to be spending time with God in his word, meditative time, prayerful time, communal time, where you're interacting with God on that deeper level of, of just getting beyond what's, what words are on the page, but how that impacts your heart and what promises he is displaying that he has given to you so that you would have life, that you would flourish. Yet we're still called to do something. We don't just sit back and let go and let God. We have to make war on the flesh. We have to pursue holiness, but it will never happen if the abiding in Christ isn't happening. So we've seen that we find our righteousness in Christ because he fulfilled the law. We've seen that we find our righteousness in Christ because he honored it from the heart. And lastly, very briefly, we'll see that we find our righteousness in Christ because he shares in the perfection of the Father. Jesus shares in the perfection of the Father. We know that we can find our righteousness in Christ because he shares the perfection of the Father. And in our union with him, we have that perfection as well. Jesus' treatment of the disciples' relationship to the law ends with Matthew 5.48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfection. What? What does that mean? Well, the Greek word is not typically speaking of moral perfection. It's variously translated in different parts of the Bible as mature or complete and, and perfect. The idea behind this is wholeness. Mankind was created as a whole being. And that wholeness, that creation, was the instance in which God's image was perfectly reflected in man, untarnished. Man's wholeness was defined by his image-bearing. And since sin entered the world, that image is still there, but it's tarnished, it's, it's warped. We don't get a clear picture, and we are not whole. Jesus himself was that perfect image of God. Paul writes so in Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God. And the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What does this have to do with you being perfect? As I mentioned all along, what, requires, what Jesus requires of us, he has accomplished for us. And as we're in him, as we are in Christ, we find our righteousness, our greater righteousness in him. Because he's given it to us. Jesus is our righteousness because he has fulfilled 
the law, and the prophets. Jesus is our righteousness because he has honored and kept God's law from the heart, and he is our righteousness because he shares perfection with the Father. Since Jesus fulfills all righteousness, we need to find our righteousness in him. How do we do that? How do we find our righteousness in Christ? We believe in him. We believe that he lived in perfect communion with our Father in heaven. We believe that he suffered, that he died, that he was buried after being crucified on a Roman cross and laid in the tomb and rose victoriously from the grave. What must you do to have a greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees? The Jews asked a similar question in John 6, 28. They said to him, what must we do to have eternal life? To be doing the works of God was their question. And his answer, believe in him whom he has sent. He also said in John six thirty five, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. The hunger and thirst, if we think all of canonical context, It's a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a hunger and thirst for Christ himself. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. If you don't have a saving faith in Jesus, but that you recognize that God's righteous requirement is so far out of your reach, you need to know that Jesus is ready to receive you if you would only come to him. And trust yourself to him. Believe in him. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. Laboring and heavy laden in your exertions to try to live up to the standard. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He will receive you. He does not push you away because of your sin. He welcomes you in because you need him and he knows it. That's why he came. He's ready to receive you. And for those of us who are already his, that invitation is open to us every day as well. He knows that we're dust. He knows that we're weak. He knows that our righteousness falls short of his glory. But he has given his spirit to you, and because of that, you enjoy union with him. So consume him through his word. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed a holy and righteous God, and your perfection is beyond what we could even think. Yet you have washed our sin away. You have poured out your wrath on Christ, and through our belief in your Son, we enjoy the righteousness that you require. The perfection that you call us to has been given to us Because when you look at us, you see your son, whom you love. Which means you love us, and we praise you for that. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word that reminds us of your holiness and also of your call to us. We pray that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've called us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll be uh, going into our time with uh, the Lord's Supper now. 
Lord's Supper is for those who are indeed in union with Christ. That union is displayed through belief and through public proclamation of baptism before the church. And if you have been publicly baptized, that you're believing in Christ, this supper is for you because he has given himself for you. If you're not in that condition, if you're not believing, if you're not publicly baptized, you should let this pass because this is indeed a family meal. It's a covenant meal. Secondly, if you're in any kind of discord in your relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ, part of this meal is a recognition of our unity with not only God, but with one another as a covenant community. So if you are in a broken relationship with another brother or sister here, I ask that you would let the cups pass. Gentlemen, go ahead and come forward. John records Jesus speaking about himself being the bread of life. He tells us that our hunger and thirst will be satisfied in him because he is the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He also says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and that will raise him up on the last day. Now, Jesus got into a little bit of a discussion and addressed some confusion because he was saying, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood uh, will have life, and that I am the bread that came down from heaven. So people were saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus tells us we have no life in him if we are not feeding on him. And whoever feeds on his flesh and drinks his blood has eternal life, and he will raise us up on the last day. His flesh is true food. His blood is to drink. Now, these cups are symbols, representatives. When he tells us that this is my body and this is my blood, he's using symbolic language. What we're holding is bread. What we're holding is juice that point us to the reality of the life that we have in Christ because he's given us his broken body and he's poured out his blood. Let's take the cup of the bread together. And also the cup. Father, again, we just give you thanks that you give us continual reminders of the gospel, both in your word and in the symbols of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I pray, Father, that those would always be fresh reminders for us and not turn into just rote rituals, but that they would be reasons for us to celebrate who you are and what you have done. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.